Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Everyone give it up for Eli. Um, Eli is uh, amazing. He is part of our local global team. Um, he's kind of heading up our Peru uh, ministry with our, with our partners there. Um, and he's continued to develop this call that God has on his life uh, to, uh, to bring the good news. And so he's going to be flying solo today, uh, bringing us into the words of Jesus. So um, I hope that you'll extend him the same grace that you give me every week. So. Can you guys hear me? Yeah. Okay. Well, well, Merry Christmas, everyone. How are you guys doing? (laughs) Um, Yeah, so like Ryan said, I'm Eli. Um, I'm married to my beautiful wife, Cassidy, who's way better than I am. I really do. I I really like uh, every time we do engagement team, um, we get in the car and I'm like, I really do think people like you a lot better than they like me. (laughs) She just is awesome. Um, And also, happy Super Bowl Sunday, everyone. Uh, Mind you, I'm not... um, yeah, there we go. We got one guy back there. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> um, I, I'm not gonna lie. I, I've been I've inherited uh, the New York Giants for better or for worse. Um, but yeah, yeah. Thanks, man. Um, but I, um, you know, I'm I'm a true football fan. Let's go, City. Uh, Liverpool got us by a few points, but we're on them. We're on them. Uh, but yeah, so this week um, we're continuing the sermon series, Mystery of Christ. Um, and when Ryan introduced it to us, it was just really cool. It's a cool idea that rather than just learning about the story of Jesus from one particular gospel, um, we're actually going to be following his life chronologically as best as we can through all four gospels. Um, so last week, well, really, we started the story of Jesus with Christmas, the nativity story, um, leading us into um, his baptism. And then last week, we started it off with Ryan teaching us about Jesus' testing in the wilderness. So this week, well, what scholars believe is probably the next significant event in his life is the wedding at Cana of Galilee. All right. And I'm really excited um, to, to, to speak about this because in my opinion, um, the wedding um, at, at Cana is kind of like Jesus' greatest meme, all right? I just feel like it's the, it's, it's the one story that everyone knows. I think even like non-Christians and non-followers of Jesus know that story really well. They're like, where can I in, like, find that catering company for my wedding? You know, unfortunately, my wife and I could not. Um, but I think there's so much beautiful depth and so much beautiful mystery, and there's uh, a radical... Um, message that John is trying to convey through this story. So um, I actually um, put up a a graphic that I want to show you guys. Boom, there it is. Okay, so what I I want us to do is I just want to take us like 10 seconds. Let's just stare at this thing really hard and long. um, And tell me what you guys see after, okay? That seemed like a long 10 seconds, or a short one. But what are we seeing? What are we noticing? A bear. A bear. Uh, an elephant. What else? A lion. Okay. <laughs> okay, so we're seeing stuff. Trees. All, all we see are trees. Okay, so, this, so actually this, this is a graphic um, make, that's called Botanimal, okay? It's called Botanimal, and it was commissioned by the World, uh, the Wa- World Wildlife Fund, all right? And the whole idea that they had was we're like, let's make an optical illusion, okay? To con- and so if you look far back, like Jenna, all you see are trees and plants and stuff. But if you look hard enough, like starting from the right, you can see like the tree trunk is actually an elephant. And then you move, as you move to the left, then there's like a tiger or a panther and then a snake and then a warthog all the way on the left. And it's really cool because like I've been looking at this graphic for like about a week and a half now and every time I look at it, I find something new. And it's really intriguing. But basically the whole point of this graphic is to kind of, the world, what the WWF was trying to convey is that um, rainforests only take up 7% of our like ecosystem in the world, um, but they actually house more than 50% of all species. So this was like an effort for them to kind of raise money to save some turtles and stuff, which is is amazing and wonderful. Um, But just like this 
graphic designer, artist, was trying to convey a message. I think it's not too dissimilar to the way that John is trying to convey a message in um, the, wedding, in the, the, the wedding story. We look back here, if we look far enough, all we're gonna see are trees, right? And we're gonna be like, oh look, nice greenery, nice stuff. It'd be nice to walk in that. And then we're just gonna keep moving on and moving forward with our lives. And you know, kind of what I do at art museums, not gonna lie to you. However, if you actually take some time to stare at it, to really analyze the painting, to analyze this graphic, what you're really gonna notice is all these details, all these animals, all this fauna, all this optical illusionary thingies that are happening. And that the more and more you ponder this graphic, the more and more you ponder this piece of art, the more and more you really begin to understand the depths of the message. And this is kind of why uh, John has become one of my favorite gospel account writers, is that John, if for anyone who reads John, you know, you go through Mark, you go through Matthew, you go through Luke, and you're like, they, these three guys look like they had a party together, uh, and they were like, oh, I like what you said, I like what you said. And rather than like turning in their own test when their teacher was, test, was examining them, they all just kind of, it was one of those, hey, just write down the answers, but change the answers so that the teacher doesn't really know that you cheated from me. That's kind of what Matthew, Mark, and Luke are like. But John was actually the one person, like probably like the, the goth in the room that had like his hair to the side and wearing all black and was like, I'm different, you know? And, and that's what reading John kind of feels like. It's just like, dude, where were you? Because none of this makes, like, is in any other story. But John writes his stories kind of in the same way that the, the artist created this, this graphic. He writes his stories in such a straightforward way that they're almost meant to purposely go over our heads, okay? And John doesn't have parables in his gospels, uh, in his gospel account, but what you'll see is that everyone misunderstands what he's trying to say. Everyone does. And so he writes these stories in a straightforward way so that the message can go over our heads, but that for people or for followers of Jesus who have eyes to see or ears to hear, that if they actually just stare a little bit longer at his painting, at the art that John is creating, that they're actually going to find the more radical um, truth that John is conveying, that they actually might be introduced to a radical way of seeing the world, okay? so. Um, so we're going to be spending um, all our time today, really, in, in John chapter 2. Um, but before we do so, I want to I read a passage um, from Amos chapter 9. Okay. So we're going to start in Amos 9, starting in verse 11. It reads as such. In that day, I will restore the fallen house of David. I will repair its damaged walls. From the ruins, I will rebuild it and restore its former glory. And Israel possessed what is left of Edom and all the nations I have called to be mine. And the Lord has spoken, and he will do these things. The time will come, says the Lord, when the grain and grapes will grow faster than they could be harvested, when the terraced vineyards on the hills of Israel will drip with sweet wine. I will bring my exiled people of Israel back from the distant lands, and they will rebuild their ruined cities and live in them again. They will plant vineyards and gardens, and they will eat their crops and drink their wine. I will firmly plant them there in their own land. They will never again be uprooted from the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. And then you can flip over to John chapter 2 or just scroll there, however you do it. John 2. On the third day, there was a wedding in Canaan in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples was also invited to the wedding. The wine ran out. Jesus' mother came over to him. They haven't gotten any wine, she said. Oh, mother, replied Jesus. What's that got to do with you and me? My time has not yet come. His mother spoke to the servants. Do whatever he tells you, she said. Six stone water jars were standing there, ready for use in the Jewish purification rites. Each held about 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, said Jesus to the servants, and they filled them right up to the brim. Now draw some out, he said, and take it to the chief steward. And they did so. When the chief steward tasted the water that had turned into wine, now he didn't know where it had come from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the bridegroom. What everyone normally does, he said, is to serve the good wine first, and then the worst stuff when people have had plenty to drink. But you've kept the good wine till now. This event in Cana of Galilee was the first of Jesus' signs. He displayed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Our guiding thesis um, for today, and for this message, is this. To see Jesus as he truly is, I mean, surrendering to a love that opens us up to see that our world is being made to flourish again, that he is the reason why. Let's pray. Um, Jesus, we love you, and we welcome you into this place. 
Um, above anything, God, I just pray that you may open our eyes to see your son more rightly. Um, that we may be drawn in by your Holy Spirit into a new way of seeing our world in which everything is being made new again, in which hope is alive again, and in which our world is alive again. Um, may you bless my words. May they not be mine, but may they belong to you. And may we walk out um, of this place walking a bit more faithfully towards you than we did before. In your name, amen. So um, John, he will div- the way he kind of structures his gospel account is he'll divide it up into seven different signs. So John chooses seven different events of Jesus' life where Jesus performed the miracle. And he'll structure his gospel in that way. So sign one, sign two, sign three, sign four. Now, basically these are all miracles of G- that Jesus performs. But whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke, again, they're just cheating off each other to pass the test. Um, whereas they just use a plethora of Jesus' miracles to kind of convey their point. John will just use seven, because in his idea that these seven signs symbolically are trying to best explain and best convey the message that he's trying to get across about Jesus, right? And so in this sign here, it's kind of acts, and what every sign acts as is like a little signpost, okay? And they're like mini movies that the audience who's watching them can see exactly what is John's trying to say. So you're watching the movie, you're watching this signpost, and John puts it in a way, again, that's really straightforward, but he puts it in a way that if you're looking really closely, and if you're paying attention, if you're curious enough, if you're open-minded enough, it explicitly tells you, this signpost, this movie, it's going to explicitly tell you and show you exactly who Jesus is. You're, it's almost like unmissable, if that's a word. There's probably a word for that, but I can't think of it right now. But it's, it's unmissable. You can't, you, if, if you're paying attention, there's no way to miss it. You know, it's kind of like a, it's like when you're, when you, you know, you're, you're watching a movie with, you know, your spouse, and something really cool happened, and you're like, babe, did you see that? And then she's like, what? Because she was looking at her phone or something? I'm not from experience whatsoever. <laughs> uh, but it's kind of like that, right? It's, you, can't, you can't miss it if you're paying attention. And so in this signpost, I, I would argue, what John is trying to show us about Jesus that's hard to miss, really point blank if we see it, is this. That the signpost at Canaan reveals that Jesus is Yahweh, the king of the earth. He's the one promised to make the earth right again. He's the one that promises to make it flourish once more. All right? So let's just start from the top of the story, and let's just kind of work our way down. So Jesus steps onto the scene, him... Uh, his mother, and his disciples. Now, I, how many of us here watch The Chosen? Have anybody watched The Chosen? It's a great show. I love it. Amazing. Get that out of your head right now. Okay? It's not bad. It does, it does a really good job at portraying the story. But it, at this, in, in, in The Chosen, it kind of shows like a lot of disciples showing up to this wedding. But so far in the Gospel of John, we've only been introduced to four. We've been introduced in chapter one to Andrew and Peter. And then we've also been introduced to Nathaniel and Philip. Okay? So Jesus only got a crew of four right now. He shows up with them. He shows up with his mom to this wedding. And, you know, they're enjoying their festivities. They're doing whatever Jewish people did in, you know, the first century and at a wedding. And his mom, you know, throughout the festivities just notices that some wine is run out. You know, and you can't have a good wedding without wine. So Jesus, so... Mary, his mother, goes up to Jesus and says, hey, they run out of wine. And then Jesus does this rebuttal thing, which I would love to really get into today because I think it's really fascinating, but we can't for time. But she, he gives her a little rebuttal. And then Mary goes to the servants and says, hey, just, just do whatever Jesus tells you to do. All right, just, just, just follow his orders. And now, at this point in the story, the dialogue stops. And then John kind of breaks the fourth wall, okay? He breaks the fourth wall, and what he says is, hey, dear reader, um, by the way, in the corner are six stone jars, okay? And they were meant to hold water, for, and this water was for purification rites, okay? You have that in your mind? Okay, we'll continue the story. So when anyone ever in a movie or in a book breaks the fourth wall, um, it's probably because they want us to know really important information um, that whatever they just said is radically going to like, be really, really important to whatever happens next, okay? So if we want to be good readers, if we want to be good our analyst, right? And we don't want to just look at the painting and just walk away and miss what's going on. Um, we need to take this information and we need to ponder it a little bit. 
Um, so these six stone water jugs held about altogether 180 gallons of water, all right? And they were used, as John says, for purification purposes. So how many of us have heard the word purification before and we're like, wow, that's such a nice religious word that I've used probably once or twice, but like really don't know what it means? Yep, me too, okay? So, but basically purification, what it basically, uh, if I was to put it in um, really layman terms, trying to like almost oversimplify it, purification is kind of like washing your dishes, all right? You know, you, you're hungry, so you're gonna go pick up a slice of pizza um, and you need a, a clean dish. You're not gonna pick the dish that has like last night's lasagna stains and oil grease. No, you're gonna, you're gonna take you know, your sponge, you're gonna put some dish soap on it, you're gonna wash off all the gunk, you're gonna wash off all the stains because you want that dish to return to its proper state of being clean so that you can put your pizza on it and you can enjoy food without getting like simonella or something, I don't know, okay? So that's kind of what purification is. So what the Jewish people would do, um, and it was commanded by their Torah, or as we know it, the law, um, they would go before eating or before some type of big ceremony and they would wash their hands. Now, they, they knew that by washing the hands they weren't like ridding themselves of like sexual immorality or stuff, but it was like symbolic for them. That as they washed their hands, it was a sign that they are being cleaned off of all their own lasagna stains. That they're being cleaned off of anything that uh, compromise them morally, their violent nature, their need to kind of one-up their next-door neighbor, their, um, their fears, like, like last week, what Ryan was talking about, like we are, this, this need, that, this fear of scarcity that we're not gonna have enough, or this shame that drives us to do really terrible things to the people we love, right? We, they wash their hands, they're symbolically saying, we're being cleaned of that, so that they could become a people with whom God can dwell because they didn't want to be a dirty dish for Jesus, or for, for Yahweh in this case, okay? And so the idea was, if everyone in this wedding has been cleaned off of their lasagna stains, have been cleaned off of, their moral, of the, the moral gunk in their lives that really complicates them and, and leads them to make really terrible choices, then now all of a sudden, if everyone is clean and purified, then this whole entire wedding space is clean and purified. And if this entire wedding space is clean and purified, that means God can dwell with us once more. And that means that the groom can look to his bride and say, hey, Yahweh's here. And the guest can look and say, Yahweh's here. And now this whole entire place becomes like a little Eden community, right? Because what are human beings in their natural state? If when we're completely clean, or completely pure, who are we supposed to be? We're supposed to be reflections of God. Back into, just like we were in the Garden of Eden. Just like in chapter one of Genesis, where God was king of the world, and everything was made right, and there was flourishing, um, and there was plants and, 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 and food, and there was enough resources to go around, where there was no war, where there was no sickness, where there was no famine, where there was no one trying to kill each other, where there was no Taylor Swift making a mess of a Super Bowl. <laughs> it was just everything was right. Everything was how it was supposed to be, because Yahweh was king, and because humans walked with God and because God walked with humans. Are you with me so far? And so the people at this wedding are symbolically trying to create a little Eden community, a little pocket of Eden to where they can walk with their God again. All right? So the story continues. John breaks the fourth wall, gives us a little, some sidebar information. The dialogue picks up. Jesus tells the servants, the catering company of the wedding, hey, go draw some water out from these purification jars and bring it to the host of the wedding. And so they do so, they, they pick up the water, they bring it over, and now somewhere from the journey of bringing the water to the host, something wild happens. Jesus puts an extra packet of Kool-Aid in it, and somehow it turns into wine. But the point, the, the significant part, I think for us, so many times, and I've heard this story so many times, just preached like this, like, oh, what water in your life needs to be turned into wine, which is like, an okay story, but like, I, there's, I don't think so. I don't think that's, that's what this, the, the symbol of the wine is about. You have to remember that John, just like Matthew, just like Mark, just like Luke, they're gospel writers, but they're not writing their gospels. I think sometimes we think this, that the gospels are written to people who don't know Jesus. That's not the case. They're not trying to convert people. They're pastors, okay? They're pastors of their own churches, and they're writing the gospel accounts because they want to convey a message about Jesus to their church, 
to their community. So John is writing to a people who are of Greek background, who are of Syrian background, Egyptian background, Asian background, Middle Eastern, all these different backgrounds. But at some point that all, um, in their lifetime, before following Jesus, they had some sort of tie to the Jewish religion. Whether they were kind of converted um, into Judaism or they just knew a lot about it. This is the community he's writing to because they were Jewish, then they became Messianic Jews. So the population of John's church are a whole bunch of Gentile Messianic Jewish people. Okay, And so when they see the wine, and they see that Jesus took wine from a symbol about Jewish purification and about Jewish attempts to make their community into little Eden gardens. And he sees, and they see that Jesus took that water and turned it into wine. They're all going to be like mind blown because they know exactly what John is trying to communicate. And so uh, what I want us to do is I want us to go back to that passage in Amos and I just want us to ponder it a little bit. Okay? Because that is exactly what John's audience would have thought of. They immediately would have gone, they would have seen the wine and they'd be like, they'd have thought of Amos, they'd have thought of Israel, I mean not Israel, they would have thought of Isaiah, they thought, would have thought of Ezekiel, they would have thought of Jeremiah, they would have thought about all these prophets and how much these prophets use the wine symbol in their prophecies and in their writings. Okay, so let's take a little pause in the Canaan story and let's take a flashback and let's go to Amos real quick. Now Amos was a prophet in ancient Israel and he basically had seen and observed that Israel, that God's people had become so corrupt morally, that they became a people of such violence, a people of such um, hatred and envy, that there was um, children, child sacrifice happening in, within Israel. There was um, sexual prostitution and sexual immorality was kind of just the norm. Um, the, the, the poor were not just mistreated, but totally overlooked and taken advantage of. Um, I mean, if this sounds all familiar, like, let me know. But this is basically what Amos is seeing. And because of everything that's happening, Amos looks at the situation and says, God is going to send us into exile. Our king, who is Yahweh, no longer wants to be a king over a people who look opposite of him. He no longer wants to condone their behavior, and he no longer wants to be associated with such violence, with such evil, with such injustice. And so Amos, through the whole, his whole prophecy, he's, in, he's kind of just describing what the exile is going to look like when uh, Israel is given over to, to a foreign power. But in the last chapter, right at the last moment, the last few verses, Amos says, but I see a time coming when Yahweh, not because of how much Israel and the Jewish people were able to clean themselves off of their moral gunk, not because of how much they tried to be an Eden community, not because of how much they convinced God to look their way again, but simply because Yahweh is so dedicated to his earth, because Yahweh is so dedicated to humanity, because Yahweh is so faithful to his promises to become king over the earth again, that Yahweh himself is going to come to earth, he's going to make everything right again, he's going to bring his kingdom and he's going to, and all the nations will know that the administration of Yahweh's governance has begun and everything will be made right again. You know, Israel is no longer just going to be one pocket of Eden while the rest of the world burns. Yahweh is going to make the entire world like Eden again. And Amos says, you want to know what sign you need to look for to know that God's kingdom has arrived? Do you want to know what, what the clue is that lets you know that God has become king over the earth again and that earth is being transformed into Eden. You want to know what to look for? Look for wine running down the hills. Look for, look to your neighbors and you're going to see gardens being built and vineyards being constructed. You're going to see just that the grapevines on your vineyards are going to grow so fast that you don't have enough time to harvest them. And then you're going to have so much abundance of resources that you're just going to share them with each other. And there's going to be no more strife. No one's going to be trying to outdo the other and outplay and outlie the other so that they can get more resources and worry about their own security? No. There's going to be so much wine to go around, so much grain to go around, that everyone is just going to have one big Eden party and everything is going to be like it was because Yahweh has come to earth. That's what you have to look for. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Amen. Like, you see, like, if we look far enough... Oh, Jesus is the greatest catering company I ever heard of. 
But then when you actually step into the story and you recognize what John is saying, you recognize that John is making this radical claim that Jesus is not just a cool parlor trick. He's not here just for someone's own wedding convenience. John is making the radical claim that Jesus is the kingdom of God embodied. That Jesus is not just, and, and not even that, it doesn't, it doesn't even stop there, that Jesus is not just bringing the kingdom with him and peacing out and saying, have fun. Jesus is bringing the kingdom as Yahweh himself, okay? And, and, and when we read the last line in this chapter, John will say, in this event was the first sign of, of Jesus, that Jesus displayed, and it displayed his glory, okay? In the Old Testament, glory was ever assigned, only assigned to two people, a king and Yahweh, okay? So if this sign is displaying what Amos said, that the kingdom of God has arrived, that the time where God is transforming earth into Eden again, where everything is going to be made right, war is now going to cease, everyone's going to have enough, the poor are going to be brought back into society and re-enfranchised again, that um, violence is going to cease, that, that our relationships are going to be made right again. If that's what John is saying. And then he goes on to say, and this displayed Jesus' kingly glory that is only ever associated to Yahweh. Then John is saying exactly that, what you hear, that Jesus is Yahweh bringing the kingdom to earth. That the thing that we've been waiting for, that the Jewish people haven't been anticipating for centuries, is finally happening right before their eyes. Okay, Matthew, Mark, and Luke will, will say that the, Jesus' first message was repent for the kingdom of, of heaven is at hand. This is John's version of it. This is John saying the kingdom of heaven has arrived. The reign of God has come. God is now king. He won't become king tomorrow. He won't become king in a few years. No, Jesus is here and he's handing us wine and not just a, a cup of it. He's handing us an abundance of it, 180 gallons of it, and the time to pour out that wine has come. Okay? And so we come to this point in the story where the message has been so clearly conveyed or you can't miss it, okay? If you've been paying attention, it's right there in front of you. But the tragic irony of John is that no matter how clear John will make the message, no matter how clear Jesus will make his point, that no one, everyone sees him, but no one ever sees him, okay? Um, the wedding host gives that kingly honor that only goes to Yahweh. He gives it to the wrong person. He gives it to the groom. So now all of a sudden, the wrong person is crowned in this story. All right? We are told that the disciples ended up trusting in this revelation about Jesus' identity. We're told that they believed. But of the four that were introduced, Andrew, Nathaniel, Peter, and Philip, which one of them is, if they're here at Jesus' first sign, but where are they at his last, at his execution? They're nowhere to be found. They scrammed, right? So they see Jesus for a moment, but they don't see him fully. At least not enough to, to be faithful the entire way. And then the only people who were actually told in the story who actually knows what happened, the servants, were not told at all that they actually believed what happened, that they understood and they saw Jesus clearly, right? So it's this tragic irony of like, it's just like, you know, when it's like getting to the point of a movie or, you know, it's like giving the, the punchline of a joke. You, you, you hit the punchline and no one laughs and you just feel really deflated. Again, I'm not speaking from experience. <laughs> but, but that's kind of what it's like. It, it's so tragic, so much Shakespearean in the sense that, like, the answer is right before everyone and no one can see it, you know? But I want to kind of restart from the story and see it from someone else's perspective. Um, there is one disciple in the story who actually makes it the whole way, and it's Mary. Mary shows up at Jesus. You know, how many times is anyone know how many times Mary is mentioned in Jesus in John's account of the gospel? He's, she's mentioned here, and then she's mentioned only one other time. Jesus is on the cross, and she looks and he looks down at her, and he and she, he mentions her name, mother. He looks at John, uh, the beloved disciple, and said, this is your son. son. John, this is your mother now. So Mary's only mentioned two times. If you're really not looking for her, you're going to miss her in John's gospel account. But I think this is kind of one of those clues. She's one of those um, motifs in John's gospel that is almost like a bookend. She starts off his ministry. She's there at the beginning, and she's there at the end. She's the only disciple of Jesus that actually 
sees him at least clear enough to follow him his whole way. She doesn't run away when things get hard. She doesn't ever doubt him. She doesn't ever tell him he's crazy. She never tries to mislead him. She never misinterprets him. Whether or not Mary totally understood Jesus and was like, what you're saying makes total sense, because I don't even know if Jesus makes total sense to me, (laughs) but she sticks it through. She sees enough in Jesus to stick it through with him faithfully. And so the question now becomes, well, what did Mary see that no one else saw? Was it that she was just naturally, like, had a natural disposition to see that Jesus was Yahweh more than other people? Did she just have extra clues that no one else had? And I really don't think that's the case. Um, all, all I have to really bank on is that she was his mother. And if I'm obviously not a mother, <laughs> uh, for biological reasons, but I am a husband. Um, and if there's one thing I've learned in being married to Cassidy for a little over a year now, is that when you love someone so deeply and you're so devoted to one person and you're open to receiving their devotion towards you and their love for you, that somehow this love that is born between you two begins to almost transform the world you begin living in. I'm really not sure how to make that make sense, but it's just, kind of what I've experienced. And I assume that raising a child is like that or even more like that. Is that, like, I mean, just imagine Mary. Like, the messenger Gabriel comes to her. He's like, you're gonna have a a child as a virgin. And she's like, that's weird. Um, I don't get it, but okay, we'll see what happens. And then all of a sudden Jesus is born and immediately like, any mother, she's just immediately attached to him. And I bet she thought in her heart, I have no clue what you mean. I have no clue what you are or who you are, but I'm gonna spend the rest of my life loving you and protecting you and making sure you're safe and taken care of and that no one bullies you or hurts you. And she'll spend her, the rest of his life just making sure that he's well fed, that he's well clothed. I'm sure she's gonna be the first one to notice if Jesus is a little thin. I bet she's gonna be the first one to notice if Jesus had a bad day at school. I bet that when Jesus is at the dinner table just rambling on and on and on about Jesus things, I bet his brothers and maybe even Joseph is gonna be like this again, but I bet she's gonna be there, her hands on her cheeks, just listening wide open, eyes wide open to him. Just at least so that he knows that there's one person in the room listening to him. And somewhere just along the way of living with Jesus, of loving Jesus and being loved by Jesus, I think Mary experienced that transformation of her world. Where she just looked back, she's at this wedding, the wine's run out, and mind you, it's not just wine, right? It's a symbol. The world is not as it should be. The world at its purest state looks like Eden, then there should be wine for everyone. There should be enough to go around for everyone. There should be no poor, there should be no rich, there should be no slave nor free, Gentile nor Jew male nor female, we should all be the children of God provided by God and the world should run the way that God says it should run. And she says, There's n- this is not how our world is, Jesus. And, she, and for some reason, I'm not, she never said the, the salvation prayer. She never had an epiphany moment in the, that, that allowed her to just make it all make sense. I think she just, I think she was just so transformed by her own love for Jesus and by Jesus' love for her as a mother to where she could say, wine's run out, but I think you have some. And this is something I think we we all experience and and I wanna just say that to see Jesus as he truly is, like Mary did, to see him really, to not miss him, to really see his identity is that to see him means we have to surrender to a love that opens us up to see that our world is being made to flourish again, and that he is the reason why. Um, That takes a lot of courage. That takes a lot of faith, it takes a lot of scariness because we want to quantify Jesus historically, scientifically, we want him to make sense. But the truth is, is that he never does. Um, one scholar talked about the Gospel of John and said, someone could historically prove that everything Jesus did 
happened. And that person will still not see Jesus for who he really is. It takes, just like in a marriage or as a parent, to see Jesus rightly, to see the world rightly, means you have to open up to his love. It means you have to take that scary step of just letting his love flow and surge through you. Okay? Um, one time when I was, uh, when I was in, um, a few years ago, I, I got to spend uh, a summer living in Mexico. Um, and what, and I, was, I was basically there for about a few months, um, and I was working with the church, with the local ministry, and about every Wednesday and Thursday, we would go out into the community around us to, to serve just the people and to evangelize or whatnot. But there was one ministry that, I, that really stuck close to my heart. Um, we would go maybe like 10 minutes down the road, and, it, and we would call it el dompe. It was just a big trash dump. You know, like the ones that we have, where everyone, where all the trash goes, and they dump it there, and they set it on fire. Um, if you actually want to look um, on Slack, I sent pictures on there. Um, so you can look at it now or later, whenever you want. But you can see what, what it really looks like. Um, so in this place, at this dump, uh, it wasn't just trash that, were, that was there. It was a whole entire community of people living there. Um, and if you look at the photos, you'll see that there, there are homes, there are tents that are surrounded by trash, and that their homes are very much built up by the trash that they found. These people were so poor, so out of their luck, so dismissed by society, that they couldn't even live on the street, <laughs> that they had to live and make their homes out of trash. And so um, my first time ever going into this ministry, um, I, was, I was just walking through the, the streets. We were looking for people to pray for. We were talking. We had um, packets of food to give out. Um, and um, we see this one man, and he has like, maybe like in his mid-60s, and he literally looks like uh, Quasimodo from, from Hunchback of Notre Dame. Like, literally, like, I, I'd never, I, I thought it was only cartoon, but he literally was, like, bent over like this. And he had a, his shoulder plate was so moved back, it was so dislocated that he couldn't, it, it hurt for him to even try to stand up. And so the, the ministry I was in, they were very charismatic, and so they, they wanted to pray for healing for him. So they prayed a few times, and nothing ever happened, and then they just gave him a hug and, and kept walking. But I, I, I just, before, before this moment, I had been reading the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm not trying to step on your heels right about next week, but um, I had been meditating on the Sermon on the Mount, and, the, and the, the one beatitude that really stuck out to me is the first one, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Or I guess John would say, blessed are the, are the poor, for theirs is the wine of God. Theirs, they get the first cup of wine. And I, I was just in my head, and so I saw this man, and that's immediately what I just, I just felt led to think of. I just thought of that beatitude, and I, and, I, and I just, I felt the Holy Spirit just leading me to talk to him. And so I go with him, and I just basically, um, I follow him kind of from distance to where he, to where he put his stuff down. And um, where I thought I would see a house made of trash, I actually just saw a mat and food. So here's a man living in a tr community made of trash right next to a dump who didn't even have a home made of trash. All he had was a mat. And I was just immediately just emotionally wrecked because I'm like, what type of hell is this man living through? So I just began talking to him and I asked him, his story, how did he end up here? And he tells me he had a lot of family issues, he got into a lot of trouble, and he just has been living here for over 20 years. Uh, and I just begin to tell him about, and I asked him for his name, his name was Jesus, of all names. <laughs> and I start telling him about Jesus. I start telling him about Jesus. I tell him, I'm like, uh, I believe and I trust that Jesus raised from the dead. I believe that he met death in the face. He met all the violence of our world. He met all the evil of our world. And he conquered it. He defeated it. And now who can defeat a man who's immortal? <laughs> who can defeat a man who has flesh and blood for all time's sake? 
This is Yahweh. This is who he is. Yahweh did the thing that Amos promised he would do. He's become king again. He hasn't become king tomorrow or in a few years. Wine is pouring out now. And I told the man that. And he just began to have tears in his eyes. And he told me, I'm living in a hell. I'm scared to walk at night. I'm scared every time I go to sleep. I'm not sure if I'm going to make it through the night. And I don't know what to do. I told him, you know, I just told him one day, these trash dump that you see around you, is going to be, God's going to open your eyes to see what it really is. That right now, this is all you see. But one day, God's going to open the blinds of the world. He's going to take the haze off of our sight. He's going to take the blinders off. And this trash dump is going to be revealed for its true nature. It's going to be a garden flowing with wine. Children are going to be running through the streets. They're going to be laughing and singing and playing. He's going to be able to laugh himself. He's going to be able to run and, and, and talk and laugh and cry tears of joy because his hell has been turned into Eden. And I, and I remember when I finished talking, he was crying, and I just asked him if he wanted a hug, and I gave him a hug, and we just walked away. I, I don't know if he accepted, quote unquote, Jesus in his heart, but I also don't know when Mary accepted Jesus in her heart. I also don't know when Peter accepted Jesus in his heart. I just know that they had the courage to let Jesus' love in just enough to where the blinders can be taken off, where the, the snake skin can be taken off their eyes, to where the haze can be cleared, to where they could at least imagine a world where G, what Jesus says goes. That we don't have to violently subdue one another anymore. That we don't have to lie to one another anymore. That we don't have to fend for ourselves anymore. That we don't have to cheat and steal. That we don't need to just say yes to every whimsical whim that is born within us. That there's actually a new reality at place and it's all because the administration of Yahweh's governance has arrived. Jesus. And like, I mean, what better time to think of that except in an election year? <laughs> When we see chaos all around us and we know that whether one president stays or another comes in, that nothing's really going to change. But we do know, because the blinders have been taking off, at least just a little, that the world is not as it looks. And that one day the entire world is going to know that. Wine is flowing abundantly in our land. So we won't give our political allegiance to no one. We won't give it to ourselves. We won't create gods of our own making. But Jesus extends a cup of wine to us. And if we have the courage to let his love in, then maybe the haze can be taken off of us as well. Maybe we can see Jesus rightly as he really is. Maybe we can see that the world is flourishing once more. And that our job, like Ryan said last week, is not to build the kingdom or to convince the world that God's kingdom has arrived we're just meant to live in that kingdom Stanley Harwas says we are a people living from and for and in the kingdom of God we are a people from the future living in the present to us the time when earth will be transformed into Eden isn't happening some time later happening right now and it's just about do we have the courage to live like it do we have the courage to actually say that the true reality of the world is the one that Jesus is making um, and that's good news it's good news to look at our hell and to say it's being transformed into Eden and that Jesus is the reason why I'm, I'm going to pray and then we're going to worship. Uh, but I, I, I pray, Jesus, that you may open our eyes. That we, um, we may not miss what it is that Yahweh is revealing about. What Yahweh is revealing the world to really be. 
one news journalist will say X about the world. Our school teachers will say something else about how the world is meant to run. Our parents and our families will say that the world is meant to be this one way. And it all just sounds so cynical, so depressing, and it's honestly very drowning, Jesus. It's so drowning and convincing, and I've heard that cynical statements about the reality of the world so much that I think at times that I've become convinced that that's how the world really is. Um, but Jesus, open our hearts up to you so that the wine that flows from Eden can flow into our hearts, so that it can flow into the world, and that we can see with eyes wide open that the world is being transformed into Eden again that everything is being made right again, that all wars will cease, that all violence will end, that peace will come, all because you are the immortal king. You are Yahweh, come to earth, not because we called on you the right way, not because we made a good case for you to come, but because you're just so dedicated and devoted to us. So may we live in a life, may we live in a world that's being transformed. And may you just help us see you rightly, Jesus. We love you, Abba. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us worship. The time will come, says the Lord, when the grain and grapes will grow faster than they can be harvested. Then the terraced vineyards on the hills of Israel will drip with sweet wine. I'll bring my exiled people of Israel back from distant lands, and they will rebuild their ruined cities live in them again. They'll plant vineyards and gardens. They'll eat their crops and drink their wine. I'll firmly plant them there in their own land. They will never again be uprooted from the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. This event in Cana of Galilee was the first of Jesus' signs. He displayed his glory and we believed in him. Jesus uh, awakened our souls to the reality that is now before us, that Eden has come, that you have come, and that all is being made new again. Convince us of that, Jesus. Open us up that we may be courageous to receive your love and see the world in a radically new way as you rebuild it before our eyes. Amen. We are a community that has been able to do that, be able to see the Lord and what he's done for us and lead us in the right direction because of some incredible elders that have led us for the past several years. Five? Oof. Um, so I'm going to invite them down um, that, have been, um, that have stepped aside to let other people in. Kristen, John, Becky, and we are going to honor them today. They have completed their tenure of City Beautiful Church eldership, and we wanted to honor them today. Yeah, go. Um, yeah, and I just wanted to say a few things about them, um, and I have to use this paper or I will go off script, and then I'll be like, you're a nice person. Um, so, yeah, so, um, Becky, you are the definition of welcoming. You have brought that welcoming heart and spirit into decision-making for our church and our community, encouraging us to always think with more compassion, more inclusivity, and you do it in the freedom and the openness of the Lord. You are willing to step into any role, greenhouse coordinator. You are, you are um, not, not only an elder, but you're a community group host, um, a friend to many, a leader in many different ways. Um, and you have used your skills to do that, but also to help us in practical things like fundraising and keeping us financially on task and how to send out emails to a mass group and just all those administrative things. Um, and you do that all with uh, as a mother and a wife and your compassion is overflowing and we have benefited greatly from that for five long years. <laughs> five years, right? Yeah, okay. Um, thank you, John. You are always optimistic and positive, and boy, do I personally need that every day. Um, you bring balance to the group um, who can get stuck in the weeds very easily. 
you give beautiful beautiful perspective that is needed in, especially in an eldership group you are incredibly welcoming as well it's part of your duo here um, and you're just very easy to be with you are someone who puts you at ease and is always interested in what is going on or what I'm saying and I know every single person feels that way it's not fake you have a softness to you that you have blessed our community with in our church family in Peru. Um, and because of that softness, you've been able to steer us into directions that are drenched in the kindness of the Lord. We will greatly miss that. We love you. Thank you. Kristen, you are the definition of wisdom. You see details that in a million years I would never be able to even consider, um, and you notice them. And somehow you also operate at a level, a very high level, um, which is astonishing that you can do both at the same time. You are very aware of everyone, and you assure that everyone is heard. You think from so many different angles and are considerate about context but that is uh, always wrapped in compassion and thoughtfulness. I never have to guess where I stand with you. You will always tell me, but I never question if you're for me. And that is really special. And you've brought that into caring for our church that same way. Um, you give everyone the benefit of the doubt always first, and that's really special. You bring depth and care into the eldership team at, um, as an elder, as a local global leader, um, and a million other things that you've done in this community. So thank you. Um, we will miss them greatly. Um, so pray over them, thank them afterwards. I don't know, Venmo them, 10 bucks to go get food. Who knows, if you spend it all our money on the church for years. Um, and so, several Friday nights, once a month for five years, they have served us. So bless them um, with your words and your gifts. And uh, we love you guys. I'll pray us out. I, oh yeah, woo. <laughs> oh, I'm not ready to let go of them. Um, Jesus, we pray for all three of them that whatever the road before them from here is, that it would be um, a, a light that is bright and beautiful and uh, stress-free, that you put the cortisol stress hormone back into their body, that they don't have to worry about this anymore. No, we are grateful for all the gifts that they have poured out to us, and we pray that you would bestow those gifts back into them and overflow their hearts, um, knowing that they were great stewards of the gifts that you gave them and they served your church well when you called them to. We are forever grateful. In your name I pray. Amen. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.